Einstein's called play the highest form of research. So, you know, there's not an inverse correlation between joy and productivity, which I like to remind students, it is okay to enjoy what you're doing, to be happy doing it. And it can also be tremendously useful. It doesn't mean it's frivolous. It doesn't mean it's a waste of time. And isn't actually that what we all want is a world where you're proud of what you're doing, you're loving what you're doing, you're engaging beautifully with each other, and things are getting better and different. That's the world I want to live in. A good kitchen produces good food, but a great kitchen brings people together. Welcome to Meet Me in the Kitchen, a podcast inspired by Little Kitchen Academy, exploring the key ingredients to a meaningful life and how they are changing lives from scratch. Here's my dad and your host, Scott Rintoul. As this podcast proves every single episode, there's a vast network of creative, dedicated people who help mold the magic found at Little Kitchen Academy. And each of them has a wonderful story to share about how their personal journey has led them to become a part of changing lives from scratch. Pam Daniels is another excellent example. Pam is the founder of and a designer at Welcome Industries the company that creates the visual measuring cups found at each and every Little Kitchen Academy. She also teaches at Northwestern University's Siegel Design Institute. So much like the instructors at Every Little Kitchen, Pam has a passion for empowering through education and a very open and broad definition of what that can look like. In fact, it's one of the themes we explored when she recently agreed to meet me in the kitchen, redefining our perceptions of certain terms, professions, and most importantly, what each of us is capable of. Now, you are the daughter of two English majors, so we should probably begin with the Oxford comma and its proper relevance in modern writing. Mm, I would say more you better use me or I appropriately in a sentence, as well as just lots of sticklers for grammar. Like capital misspellings are happening everywhere in press these days, and it drives me crazy. We all have our little thing if we love the English language. There was one point where I actually wanted to open an account on a social media site called at apostrophe and just fix people's apostrophes. And that was it. That's funny. There's a cute book called Eats, Shoots, and Leaves about pandas. Have you seen that book? We own it. (laughs) You own it. Okay. So the context and, you know, the punctuation can change that sentence quite dramatically. Yes, that's funny. Now, you obviously didn't follow your parents' footsteps completely, but I am wondering how you believe their careers and their education background helped shape your career. Great question. My parents are amazing. In a speech I gave when I won a teaching award, I phrased it as, I won the parent lottery. And I really did. I had incredibly encouraging parents who just really encouraged dreaming big and taught me that education was about preparation for citizenship and finding what it is that you love and becoming skilled at articulating an idea and developing a robust set of peers who can challenge your thoughts. That's what I learned education was. And so my two English major parents did encourage me to go into liberal arts. And so I was a French major as an undergraduate. And then many, many years later, I pursued a graduate degree at an engineering school in design. And I do want to get into all of that, but I'm now wondering how their approach to education 
has helped shape you both as an educator and as a parent? Well, for starters, my mom is an educator. So my mother was a special education teacher. She took time off when we were little, as many women did at that time in particular, and was home raising us. But I think when my littlest brother was in middle school, she went back to teaching. And so I think being raised by an educator is an incredibly fortunate position because she got out of the way. She sort of saw her role as to allow me to do things and my siblings as well. We know we were allowed to make messes. We were allowed to cut stuff up. She didn't really like Play-Doh very much. I'll say that she didn't like Play-Doh. But mostly, I mean, the yard was fair game. The garage was fair game. I had a workshop in the basement. I had wood-burning tools as a kid. I built furniture as a kid. And my mother was just very encouraging and receptive to that and just like, oh, what are you doing? Interested, perhaps? And my dad was present less because he was the primary breadwinner. But my dad was the person who really was all of our cheerleader. He's passed on, so he's no longer with us. But he was just the person who told you anything is possible and really invited and encouraged me as his child, but really everyone he knew to just dream big and do it. Dream big is something you've mentioned on multiple occasions. I think parents can relate to that because that's something I think most parents try to instill in their children, whether or not they're able to practice it is a different story. So how has the dream changed from what you thought it might be coming out of, say, high school into what it has become now? Oh, it's changed a lot. Uh, so I'm a pretty ambitious person because, you know, hear what I said before, Dream Big was very encouraged in my family. No one ever said be reasonable, not ever, which explains so much about me as a person. But my goal in high school was to be ambassador to France. That was my goal in high school. And so I picked a college based on who had a really great international relations program and landed at Tufts University. My understanding then was that half the diplomats came out of Georgetown and half came out of the Fletcher School, which is the graduate program at Tufts University. And as life would you know, turn out, I took my first international relations class and detested it, like with a passion. <laughs> I didn't think the professor was a very nice person, and I didn't really like the other people in the class particularly much. And I was like, huh, I think I was wrong about what I wanted to do. I don't think that I really love politics. I think I love culture. So I ended up majoring in French and taking Japanese classes and Spanish classes and German literature classes. And really just, I still, to this day, have a profound love of people and culture. And I think language studies are a wonderful way into that. So that was my first you know, <laughs> aspiration and then pivot. And you've used your language in a number of different ways. You've used it as someone who worked on the media side of things. You have worked in various strategic positions throughout your career. How did you find your way to design, both as a designer yourself and as someone who teaches design? I would say that I reclaimed my identity as a designer. And I think this would resonate with, I know it resonates with Brian and Felicity, the founders of Little Kitchen Academy. But I think that we all come wildly creative and very driven to imagine and very biased toward making. And I think that in some cases, our education sort of drills that out of us and says that those things are childish or playful. And I can tell you that exactly no one tells a smart girl to take more shop classes. <laughs> so I was sort of steered toward music in high school. 
And I enjoy music very much as well, but I really, really loved building things. As a child, I designed and sewed the dress I wore to senior ball, for instance, in high school. I sewed the duvet that I brought to college. I made curtains for my dorm room. I mean, really, really, someone should have tapped me when I was about 12 and said, hey, do you realize there is a field called industrial design and that that's what you call the people who design all the objects in our lived environment? And I would have said, tell me more about that. I just didn't really know for a very long time what the options were to pursue design as a professional endeavor. So for a long time, I had a career in innovation work. And then I had old houses I was fixing up on the side and sewing every window treatment for and designing and building kitchen cabinets with my stepdad. You know, so there was sort of like this side hustle of doing it for pleasure. And then there was the professional work I was getting paid for. And at some point at 40, during a massive midlife crisis, I sort of wondered, what if you fused those two bits of your life? What would that look like? And that's really how I landed in design as a profession. The answer to that question might have been an HGTV show as well. You could have been somebody that we watched fix up old houses and redesign them completely for people. I would enjoy that as another side hustle, actually. I may contract you one day. (laughs) Now, I watched one of the videos for the Siegel Design Institute, and one of your quotes in that video was, everyone can be a designer. And I guarantee there are listeners, maybe even a host, immediately thinking, not me. Maybe everybody else, but not me. How do you demonstrate to people who don't see themselves in that light that they, in fact, can be designers? I think that reclaiming our creative potential is one of my most (laughs) sought-after goals in life. That's my mission in life, is to help all of us, remind all of us that we have the capacity to imagine and create together, and that the world is not just some thing handed to us that's unchangeable, that everything is changeable. And I think that when you begin to claim your power as a designer, whether that was, I saw you moving flowers in your background before we set up something and you said that those flowers weren't right where they were and they should move over here a little bit. Or perhaps you have a very carefully curated morning routine. Those things, everything we do, anytime we are living our life with intentionality and imagining new possibilities for ourselves or our communities, that's design. So it's design very broadly conceived, but I believe it is in all of us. And some of us have a harder time letting go of that childlike part of ourselves than others, perhaps as we get older. And some of us need to reclaim it. Well, I think you make a really good point there. It's as much about the definition of what design constitutes and a much more open definition and curious definition of that than perhaps many adults would think in. Yes. Just like cooking, I suppose. You know, do you approach cooking as like, I got to get dinner on the table and you just haul out some frozen thing and stick it in the microwave? Like that's cooking. That's one definition of cooking. But so is the magic that goes on at Little Kitchen Academy where children who many might look at and think are too young to be handling those types of objects, knives, scissors, whatever, people tend to be quite protective of their children these days. And in Little Kitchen Academy, you see kids standing on step stools so they can reach the counter, really busting it out and showing what they got as little creators with food. So even what cooking means can also be defined very differently for different people. And we see a part of you in every little kitchen as well and part of your design, which I will get to momentarily, but you gave me just another segue there and I appreciate it. 
because another one of your quotes that I found when I was preparing for this interview is this one. I started liking cooking when I realized it could be a creative pursuit instead of following directions. Can you explain what you mean by that? And also when that light bulb went on? <laughs> yes. You did a great job doing your research, Scott. Most people, I don't think, know that I feel that way about cooking, but I do. Most people know I recoil at being told what to do. But I think that for many of us, cooking begins with baking. And baking is more of a science. You know, when it says a half a teaspoon of baking soda, if you forget that, your muffins aren't going to turn out right. And so because that was my door into cooking was baking as a child, shout out to the Easy Bake Oven, anyone. But I think it took me a while to realize that not all things need to be so specific and so precise that you can sort of take a little bit of this and a little bit of that and use up the things you have in the fridge. And that's honestly where I found most satisfaction is creative problem solving. Like, okay, we have fresh lettuce in the fridge and we have a little bit of leftover ham and some Swiss cheese. Maybe I could make a French salad with that. Oh, because we have the mustard. Great. Perfect. And it just kind of comes together. And I still very much prefer that type of cooking to, you know, give me a recipe of 30 ingredients. Like, <laughs> I would much rather make something that's a physical thing than that food probably or go out to eat. All right. So this leads me to the question that we ask every single episode of this podcast. And I'm very curious to see where this goes. Pam, what is the one ingredient that is always in your kitchen and why? I wish I could tell you that it's something like creativity or something really lovely like that. But the one ingredient that is always in my kitchen as a person from Wisconsin is cheese. There is always cheese in my kitchen, usually four or five kinds of cheese. Okay, so what are our top five cheeses in Pam Daniels' world? If you can go to the cheese buffet to end all cheese buffets and you can pick five for your kitchen, what are the five that you're going to pick? Oh, this is going to be so easy. Parmigiano-Reggiano, good Parmesan, on the big hunk, the kind that comes in the wheel. Don't even mess with a little green shaky container. Second would probably be Kerrygold Dubliner cheese. Love that on a little rice cracker. Third would be a really good Swiss cheese, ideally Emmentaler. Fourth would probably be a nice sharp cheddar. Ooh, and then fifth would be, it's a Mexican cheese that's great for melting. Oh, what do you call it? I can't remember the name of it. Chihuahua cheese. Chihuahua cheese, like the kind you would put in a quesadilla. I never knew what that kind of cheese was called. I've been to Mexico multiple times and their quesadillas always taste so great, but I didn't know what kind of cheese it was when I got back home. Yeah, it can be hard to find, but we usually have that in the fridge too. Like I said, a lot of cheese. There's a whole bottom drawer that's the cheese drawer. So you are very experimental as a cook. How would you describe yourself in the kitchen? <laughs> yeah, so because I'm experimental, we go out a lot. <laughs> <laughs> How would I describe myself in the kitchen? Oof. Well, my kitchen right now is part art studio because I'm making a lot of paintings right now. So I'm like picturing my kitchen in my head and my kitchen looks like an art studio. And there's also some food. There's a box from a farm. We get a farm share. So there's also a box I didn't put away before I came to do this podcast with you of fresh things from a local farm in Chicago. I mean, there's usually music playing in my kitchen. I like to cook with music. And I really prefer to cook when it's sort of not on a strict timeline. I mean, if I come home hungry, I'm a person who gets hangry. I don't know if you are, but it's better if I'm not hungry when I'm cooking because it's nice if I can kind of relax into it, sing along with the music, maybe sip a glass of wine, and then pursue it as though it's just a creative endeavor, not because I'm starving. Well, there's no wine at Little Kitchen Academy. 
But as I mentioned, there most certainly is a part of you in every little kitchen academy because the visual measuring cups and visual measuring spoons that are designed at Welcome Industries, they are a favorite of Felicity. She raves about them all the time. For those who have not seen them or ever used them, can you first describe what they are? Sure. So visual measuring cups, let's start with that, are inspired by a pie chart. So most measuring cups, the kind you would use for scooping up flour and baking where you would level off the cup, not a liquid measure, but a a scooping measure. Most of those prior to designing these were just circles, circle, 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 a nested set of circles. And it was very difficult to tell at a glance which one was which, because once you take them out of the nested set, Can you tell visually which one's a quarter and which one's a third of a cup? Not really. And so I started wondering whether it would be possible to make a half look like a half and a quarter look like a quarter and a third look like a third. And so that is the concept. So they were inspired by a pie chart. And so the full cup, one cup is a full circle. A half a cup is half of a circle. And then a quarter is, you know, a quarter of a circle. And a third is a little trickier, but yes, a third of a circle. Now that seems so obvious. And what I love about the visual measuring cups that you just described is it is a seemingly simple solution, yet it's one that nobody had ever come up with before. So it's not a simple solution. It's actually complex in the thinking it takes to identify that problem. And that's something that I saw you talk about in the videos as well, that we need to approach a lot of these things as what's the actual problem here? How did you identify that as a problem that needed solving? Well, I was, I don't know how this is going to land on your listeners, but I was in graduate school and I was bored in class. So I'm actually a big proponent of being bored in class. And I invite any students who are bored in class, not of course, the highly hands-on environment of Little Kitchen Academy, but to doodle. There's a wonderful YouTuber called, I think her name is Vi Hart. She goes by the math girl, but she doodles in class. She does amazing videos about math. If you like math, check them out. But I was bored in class and I started doodling and I started wondering why all measuring cups were just concentric circles and could they look like the shape they represent? And if you did that, what would you do with the handle? I have the original sketches of what I was doing and it includes like a list of Target, like what I needed to go buy at Target later that day to make dinner. It was just doodling in class. I want to just chime in on something else you said too. You said that nobody else had thought of this. I am positive that other people thought of this but I know that nobody else did it because it's a patented design. So when I came up with the idea in class, I thought, surely someone has done this before. I mean, it's a pretty obvious idea. But as I did the research and realized that they weren't any cups like that on the market, nor had any ever been patented, I think that probably people thought of it, but there's a big difference between thinking and doing. And so I had the audacity, perhaps thanks to my parents and their encouragement, to do it. And it was tricky, as you mentioned, some of the trickier elements as someone who really, really, really loves design. You know, what do you do with the handle? How do you make it look like a half, but then not have the handles be all wonky looking and askew? How do you get the handles beautifully aligned and then still make it read like it's a half? When they're nested, how do you keep them nested? And that was accomplished by adding a little curvature to the underside of the handle so that once you stick them in the nested set, they stay that way. If you jostle them around, as will happen in a kitchen, they don't all come askew. So there was a ton of uh, refinement of the idea, as well as I was pretty new as a designer at the time, and I had to learn the finer points of SolidWorks to even accomplish the modeling for the first prototypes 
which were 3D printed. So that was learning for me, which I love. I love doing what I've never done before. So it was all a very thrilling and long process. It's a great distinction you make in that answer between thinking of something and having the audacity to actually do something. A lot of people have what seem to be great ideas, but they don't take that step. Perhaps as both a designer and an educator, what do you think the roadblock is for most people? I think that all of us have, you know, a fear of judgment, perhaps, or not all of us really love running headfirst into the unknown. (laughs) I have learned through, mostly through my improv coaches, that I love being knocked out of my comfort zone. I really like a challenge and I am not afraid to look foolish because I'm pretty confident in my ability to recover from those things. Again, probably thanks to my upbringing. I mean, nobody likes failure. I know it's kind of in vogue to be like, oh, failure is so important. Failure stinks. I mean, nobody likes failing. But the more you learn to sort of embrace failure as sort of inevitable if you're trying a lot, like you're going to miss shots you take. You just are. Even the best athletes miss shots. (laughs) World-class athletes miss shots. So there will be missed shots. But not daring to try to me is a pain worse than failure. And so I very much believe in silencing that inner critic that says, oh, it can't, it won't. But how I think a lot of times, and I know this is a podcast and not something people will be able to see my face, but a lot of times when you put an idea out there, other people will respond and like their forehead will sort of narrow. They'll get these little creases and they'll sort of like drill in like, well, how are you going to do that? And what's the whatever? And they're just sort of like almost needling the idea. And I think that there's a lot more room in the world for people who say, oh, that sounds really interesting. Tell me more about that. That's a question that goes wide. That's a question that doesn't shut down the idea. And so when I lead design and innovation workshops, which I do on occasion for select clients, Some people will ask, how do I become a better collaborator? And I'll often say, well, the first thing you can do is learn to be a better collaborator with yourself. And so when you have an idea, even just in your head, if the first thing that happens is, well, no, but it kind of like won't even let your idea have the full light of day in your own head. Ooh, try to just let your ideas breathe a little bit. And then certainly when you're in a community with other people and other people are sharing ideas, just nod and smile and say, interesting, tell me more. (laughs) instead of those winnowing questions that kind of eliminate possibilities. Because of course you don't have all the how and what and what. It's just a new idea. It's like a precious little newborn idea and you have to be very gentle with it. If we want to use an analogy that plays on the theme of this podcast, really ideas are seeds and some seeds sprout right away and they are going to produce fruit or vegetables within a few weeks. And there are others that grow into trees. And those take a really long time to get to where they're at. And your point is a really good one, because if we don't even bother planting those seeds, or we don't even give them the soil they need, they're never going to get anywhere. But it could be an idea today that doesn't become that tree five, 10 years from now. Right. I love that. And all seeds, even the fastest blooming ones, need care and the appropriate conditions. They need what they need. And so why I was so excited to be approached by Felicity and Brian in their early days, the first Little Kitchen Academy wasn't even up and running yet. I think it was still very much a seed of an idea for the two of them. But just these environments that really honor the child, that really honor the learner and make that seed, if you think about the children as the seeds, make those seeds able to grow 
grow and flourish. So yes, all of our ideas and all of our children and our inner children also need that level of care and attentiveness. So that was the concept for Little Kitchen Academy at the time. That has become a reality. What have you witnessed? I know there isn't one where you live right now, but there will be in the very near future. But what have you witnessed just through the videos and following along with Little Kitchen Academy in this journey? Oh, it's so exciting to see Little Kitchen Academy have grown from the seed of an idea into many locations. I don't know how many Little Kitchen Academies there are as of today, but it's many. And when I see the images on social media of kids experiencing joy in a learning environment, it just thrills me. There was a little boy doing a robot dance in class the other day, and that's celebrated. It's not like, get back to your station. Or just the intense concentration. You know, Maria Montessori really believed that the educator's job was not to interrupt concentration, not to even command their attention all the time, but to essentially create a well-curated, carefully prepared environment and then leave the students alone in a beautiful, like supportive way, but not interrupting that. And I, I love seeing that. You witness it all the time through their concentration, through their joy, and then their pride at what they can make. Thrilling. Very well said. And as you just referred to, Little Kitchen Academy is Montessori inspired. One of the things Felicity told me is that you actually use the Montessori method approach in some of your university courses. How does that manifest itself in those settings? I do use Montessori methods at a university. It was actually the last work Maria Montessori was doing was how her methods would be applied to later stage learners, high school and college, and then, you know, she passed away. But the way that it plays out in my classrooms is the classroom is a carefully prepared environment. So in most studio settings where I teach, the tables are elevated, so they're higher. And that is very much so that the students and I are eye to eye, that I'm not standing over them really don't like standing over students because equality is important in a classroom setting. I also kick off classes saying this might not be like your other classes because I don't have the answers. The answers are something we create and discover together. The classrooms all have prototyping materials in them. So there are things in the room to help you make your ideas manifest. You don't just stay in your head and you don't even just stick with a pen. You're able to sort of build your ideas and in fact, required to build your ideas. Sometimes we kick off class one with what we call a make storm and I'll put a few prompts on the board and say, pick one of these questions that sparks interest to you and just build your first answer to it. And this, you know, for a Northwestern University student sparks a little bit of fear <laughs> because they're good at school. <laughs> they're good at the more traditional ways of demonstrating learning. But for some of them, this is quite scary to be in a setting like this. So another part of the classroom is sort of making it a safe enough space that you feel free to take risks, that you're able to sort of be supported by your peers, be supported by your teacher, any design coaches that might be in the room, that it's a non-competitive environment that it's an environment where we're all seeking to imagine and create together. And it's thrilling to see in university students as much as it is for the kids I see at Little Kitchen Academy, as much as it is for corporate clients. I mean, seeing people wake up and realize that they can imagine and create things together is, like I said, my life's work. It's a really refreshing thing to hear, quite frankly, because when you mention a prestigious university like Northwestern, that does conjure up the idea of, serious academic studies. And 
I do believe in the traditional education system, the further we go along, especially for those who are high achievers in those traditional metrics, school gets pretty serious and you lose some of the fun of learning. But it sounds to me like you are determined to make sure that this is enjoyable and the students know this is a choice and it should be fun. Yes. Yes. And actually, Einstein's called play the highest form of research. So, you know, there's not an inverse correlation between joy and productivity, which I like to remind students, it is okay to enjoy what you're doing, to be happy doing it. And it can also be tremendously useful. It doesn't mean it's frivolous. It doesn't mean it's a waste of time. And isn't actually that what we all want is a world where you're proud of what you're doing, you're loving what you're doing, you're engaging beautifully with each other, and things are getting better and different. That's the world I want to live in. So I strive within the power that I have to create classrooms where it feels like that. We've had parents and students come on this podcast. We've had instructors come on this podcast. And some of them have shared stories about how they or family members or they've witnessed change from a student coming in on that first day and then two, three weeks or months later, here's the student and here's the approach and here's how the mindset is different. How have you seen that happen in your class? And perhaps is there a specific story that you would share of a student that you witnessed change and go through an evolution? I'm delighted to say that it happens all the time. And it is such an honor and a privilege to be able to witness that and to facilitate that growth. I'll try not to start crying, but it's really emotional to me to see that transformation in a person and to see them sort of embrace the fullness of their capabilities. So a couple of stories I could share is, uh, I don't know if I should tell you the sort of like success stories. I get students write back after they've graduated. Sometimes they'll reach back out and usually they start with, I don't know if you remember me. Well, I always remember them. But for instance, there is a student, I teach a class called Designing Your Life, and I co-created that class at Northwestern University. There's a course by the same name at Stanford University. Their faculty was gracious enough to say we could also use the name and they supported our early journeys in developing what that class would look like for Northwestern. It's very unique to us. But in that class, as we talked about earlier, design is very broadly conceived. It's about designing your life, which is you know, a daunting task, and, and the class is open to juniors and seniors. And so the way that that class culminates is in what we call the design showcase. So students are tasked with doing something that sort of intrigues them and maybe scares them a little bit for the class as their final project. And so there was a student named Ryder who brought a keyboard to the final class and said, you know, I've always wanted to compose songs. I kind of do it a little bit on the side, but I've never shared a song I've written with anybody else before. And what I want to do today is just share with you a song that I've written and play it for you. And he did. He had composed this song. He sang this song. The song happened to be about everything he learned in Designing Your Life. And then it was amazing. It was phenomenal. Well, a couple of years later, he reaches out. Hey, I don't know if you remember me. It's Ryder. But I was just on the Jimmy Kimmel show. You know, he does this thing where you get two hours to write a song and then perform it on national TV. And I decided to do that. And I did it. <laughs> like, what? That's so exciting. And so you know, the biggest thrill for me is seeing students who awaken to their own capacity and then keep doing it long after my classes are over. So that's one story I would share with you. And there are lots. I mean, it can be so personal, though. It can be shedding the notion that your identity is all about your achievement and deciding to be a better brother. Like, 
Oh my gosh. I mean, there's so many ways to live a beautiful life and to embrace your capacity to imagine and create. And it's not just about careers and it's not just about what you get paid to do. It transcends really everything. So I love being in a place where I get to engage with people who are in that still stage of development and open to learning and growing. And it's beautiful what we get to create together. Well, and that's such a similar mindset to what Brian and Felicity and Little Kitchen Academy are doing. It's not about the actual song. The song that Ryder came up with, I'm sure, was beautiful, but it's about the courage and the empowerment and the self-confidence to present that to others. And as you described, when you get to witness that in someone else, it's as fulfilling as anything you'll experience, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And to even be able to do it together, there's some silly things we've done too. There was a student who missed a few classes last time. So the TA came up with the idea. We had pranks had come up as a subject in class. And the TA is like, you know, do you think we should prank him? And I was like, ooh, what would that look like to you? Tell me more. See, you hear me say that? Tell me more. And he said, well, what if we did a mock quiz? <laughs> so we created a mock quiz and then had told everybody else except this one student that it was, in fact, a mock quiz. And people played along with it so beautifully. People were scribbling answers to their questions like, where should we turn these in? And at some place at the bottom of page one, it said, if you're reading this, you've been pranked. <laughs> and then finally, he was like, oh, my goodness, you guys got me so good. But, you know, it's not just about me as an educator. It's really about the context we create together. And I have to imagine at Little Kitchen Academy, the experience is as shaped by the fellow students in the room as it is by the teacher. So the teacher is creating the context and setting the tone for what is permissible at Little Kitchen Academy. You know, how does this work? But then hopefully, and it's certainly what I get to see on social media, is those students are taking delight in each other and themselves. And I think that that's just a really exciting thing to remember that you sort of hold that power as an educator or as a parent, not just to honor the individual, but to kind of create the smell of the place, if you call it that, the culture, sort of what does that feel like to be in a little kitchen academy? Not just how many recipes can you produce at the end of the day, but you know, what does it teach you about yourself and what does it teach you about each other? And much like you, a common refrain that I've heard back from instructors in conversation is that the students, much like in your classroom, teach them as much as they are giving to the students. And it's that great symbiotic relationship. But with that thought of Ryder in mind and the Jimmy Kimmel challenge in mind, perhaps I will throw that to you to imagine on the spot with your visual measuring cups and spoons. How would you present those in a class at Little Kitchen Academy to children as young as three years old? Oh, I mean, so the interesting thing with three-year-olds, they don't have any preconceptions about how anything is, right? So if you hand them to them and they're the first set of measuring tools they ever use, they're just going to be like, great, cool. It's really only once you have the context of what they're supposed to be like and that these are not like that, that you kind of get the, oh, cool, that's not like the other ones I've seen. But I think what I would probably do, maybe not for the three-year-olds, but certainly for any kids learning fractions, I would probably lay out the measuring cup, so the quarter, the third, the half, and a full cup, and I would probably give them a liquid measuring cup too and say, okay, let's play around a little bit. How many of the quarter cups do you think it takes to make one cup? And let's try that. And so I wouldn't do much talking. I would just invite activity. And 
I would invite them to sort of delight themselves by seeing, oh my gosh, yeah, now that I've poured four scoops of water into the liquid measure cup, it adds up to one cup. Cool. Okay. Should we try that with three? Okay. Dump out your water. Let's try it again with the third cup. How many do you think? And then they might be starting to feel all smart. Like, I bet it takes three. Like, I bet you're right. Let's find out. So I think that's how I would do it. And actually, now that you say it, I hope I have the chance to do that at some time. There you go. Maybe I will see if Felicity and Brian can get you into a class because I know there is one coming to Chicago very, very soon. And perhaps we can get you into that class. I will end with this. Because you are constantly thinking and evaluating problems and design, what is a problem that you've thought about a lot that you would love to find a solution for or one that you are currently working on? Hmm, such a good question. So the first thing that popped into my head of something that I would love to see broadly reconsidered is lawn care equipment. I would like to see Tesla go into lawn care, honestly, because I would like it to be silent and electric. (laughs) So that's one wish, just as a person who lives in a neighborhood. And I find it amusing, actually, that my next door neighbor drives a Tesla but hires a lawn service where they use gas-guzzling, giant, loud lawnmowers to mow the lawn. I just... I kind of scratched my head and go, that is so interesting. I think we're the last holdout on our block that still has a push mower. So (laughs) that's one. I would very much enjoy seeing silent, non-emissions generating lawn care. So I don't need to be the one who comes up with that. I'd like somebody else to do that. And then in other things, I guess so many things could be reimagined. Pretty much anything really related to the aging. If you go down, I will call it the geriatric aisle of Walgreens, Everything from the walkers that people use to the, if you've ever seen the thing that would help you get in and out of a bathtub when you have mobility challenges, so much of the things that that goes with impairments is just soul crushing. It's not beautiful. It's not elegant. It's not well considered. So really, I mean, anything where people's life is diminished by an object in their environment and it could instead be elevated, that's a lot of things, but that. I love it. And we leave this conversation with me more inspired than I came into it. Thank you very much for that. And thank you very much for all of your insight today, Pam. Thank you for having me, Scott. And congrats. I know the podcast just celebrated a year. Congratulations on that. And I can't wait to check out the Little Kitchen Academy near me. Meet Me in the Kitchen is curated and produced by Toolkit Content. You can find more information about Little Kitchen Academy, including classes, locations, employment, and franchise opportunities at littlekitchenacademy.com. What's the one ingredient that's always in your kitchen? 